Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast we dive into the memories of Pete Mason exec producer on Paul Weller's Days of Speed album. An absolute classic, that acoustic double live LP features songs from right across Paul's career. We're talking jam classics, that's entertainment, Town Called Malice, The Star Council's Head Start for Happiness, Down in the Sane, and solo hits, You Do Something to Me, Wildwood, and so much more. A huge, big, multi-platinum selling album, and Pete was a part of it. Not only that, he works for both major and independent record labels in the UK, including Polydor, Chrysalis, Go Discs, and Independiente, which saw him involved with album and single releases from many of the UK's finest artists. We're talking The Lars, Billy Bragg, Portis Head, The Beautiful South, Travis, and two of his all-time music heroes who you'll hear about on this podcast, John Martin, and of course, Paul Weller. We're going to head stateside right now. It's very, very early morning where Pete is. Let's get into it. Morning, Pete. Thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Now, look, we find you stateside and you've been there for many, many, many years. But back here in the UK, we're going to dig through your story of, what, 17 years, I think, working with major independent record labels. We're talking Polydor. We're talking Go Disc. We're talking Independiente. And obviously, Weller's Journey connects to these labels. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, totally. So you're stateside right now. This is Tell, tell me about the room that you're in, because I can see gold discs, platinum discs all around. <laughs> yeah, well, this is my studio, music studio, which I kind of set up once I got over here. 
here. Uh, I had what, a, a smaller version, much smaller version in the UK. But I've always kind of done music as a hobby, writing music. And uh, I, I was in a couple of bands when I was at Phonogram and Polygram and stuff. But not, they were just studio bands. We didn't play live or anything like that. So, yeah, this is my studio. Uh, and the discs you see around, I've got the the one over here. That's my Days of Speed one, which I'm extremely proud of because it actually, actually means, you know, the most out of all of them, really. But these um, these were gifts from Andy McDonald um, at Go Discs when we worked there. All the staff, if we had a, a good successful year, Andy would give gold discs and platinum discs, whatever the award was over the time, to the staff members. We all kind of got them. And funny wow. enough, I was, I was the person responsible for uh, getting them made as well. So, I, can't, <laughs> I used to know who was getting them and who wasn't getting them, you know. <laughs> well, they're so cool, aren't they? I mean, there's still that yeah. thing about like those on the wall. Whatever. And there have been obviously a few of my guests, as you would expect, who had mm. them up in the house. Or you're like, that is pretty bloody cool, really. <laughs> there's still, I mean, there's something about the vinyl anyway, just the record. But the yeah, fact you've got a gold or a platinum one there, you know, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know what they hand out now for, you know, for uh, Spotify plays. You know, it's probably <laughs> yeah, a no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stamp-sized, no, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, award or something. I don't know. But yeah, I'm proud of them. I, I like to display them. You know, it, it takes me by where I look up. There's one that you can't see. It's just behind there, which is uh, the Lars. There's the first one I got, actually. The Lars the Be- um, Beats International and the Beautiful South. Oh, all right. Okay. So, yeah. Cause yeah. all on go discs at that time. So look, we're going to yeah. dig into this journey. First sure. of all, t- tell me where in the States you are and actually where you are is pretty important in terms of music heritage, right? Music history. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I'm in uh, a little, little small town called Verona. Um, but the closest bigger town is about 20 minutes away and that's, uh, Madison which is the capital of Wisconsin. Musically, I I didn't know any of this before I got here, but um, it does have a a kind of rich music history. Um, Butch Vig, who is in the the drummer from the band Garbage and, you know, record producer, he had a studio. He started his, he's from a little town called Viroqua, which is probably about an hour away. He went to school in Madison. He started his own studio. So in that studio, he was, he, this was kind of, during the, the, the Smashing Pumpkins when they, they were starting out and those kind of bands and a lot of the grunge stuff was coming through. Um, so he recorded uh, an album called Gish, a pretty successful album called Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins at a Smart Studios. He got a good reputation from his work that he was doing with these, you know, some local bands and there was another band that was pretty successful called Killdozer. But from that, word got round to Nirvana. Nirvana was starting to come through. I think they'd had their first album on Sub Pop. Once that first album came out, uh, they started to look for producers for the second album. And because Kurt Cobain and, you know, the band had a lot of the records that Butch was producing, they wanted to use him for the sound. So Nirvana came up in the very early days, um, pre-recording to, uh, I think they did some demos at his studio in Madison. And I think one of the tracks, Polly, was uh, one that was actually used on the Nevermind album. But then they moved the whole thing from smart studios out to California to really, you know, finish it off. Cause I think, I think they signed to Geffen after that's right. Yeah. After yeah, yeah. that and stuff. So, um, yeah, cool, things went man. I love big that. Time. Oh, nice little connections. I love it. I'm going to get you into a time machine. We're going to go back to 1985. First of all, and I okay. think I'm right in saying we're going into the mail room at Polydor. Was that yeah. right? That was your first proper gig there. Yeah. Um, before that, uh, I'd, I actually worked for, the, the way I got into the music industry, because I knew when I left school, I'd started to get into listening to Paul's stuff 
um, really through the Star Council. Of course, when I was at school, the playground was like a sea of green parkers, you know, <laughs> with the jam patches on the back and the who and all that kind of stuff. So the mod revival thing was really kicking off there. Um, and it was, it was kind of big because I'm originally from Enfield in, uh, in Middlesex, just outside of London. So yeah, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a, a fan of the jam then, but I was aware of them, you know, because everyone had them plastered all over their coats and stuff. And everyone was, you know, wearing mod gear and stuff, except me. I, I didn't really kind of. <laughs> I didn't really suit the mod thing. I just didn't have the <laughs> no. I've the tried look. Them. I don't I, think I, I've tried and failed at that as well. Yeah. I know you've you've <laughs> got to be you've got to have a certain look. I think, or you know, to carry that off. I'd starting to get into the Star Council and I speak when Speak Like a Child came out. I just fell in love with the band and really took notice um, of Paul. From that point on, and I remember like buying Speak Like a Child, listening to the B-side Party Chambers, which I thought was just fantastic. We've just had the 40th anniversary of that single. It's crazy, isn't it? That seemed mad, right? <laughs> yeah, I've still got my original one out there, although it's kind of got a crack in it, but uh, I've still got it out there. So that was 83, and I left I left school in uh, in 1984, and by that time I knew... I wanted to, I wanted to work in the music industry. I wanted to be in that environment with these pop stars and work with people like Paul Weller as a, you know, as a dream back then. And, uh, I was also into Banana Rama at the time as well. <laughs> I bought their first album. So, you know, I, I really was, was getting to grips with music and wanted to work in there. But I, I thought, well, that's just, it's kind of a distant thing, you know. Kid from Enfield, where where the hell am I going to find a way into the music industry? Back then you could go to Capital Radio on oh, the Eastern right. Road. Um, that's where their studios were. And at the basement there, they had like a job center. And I thought at the time, it's like, well, okay, there's probably not going to be anything music related in Enfield. So I'm going to need to move further into town and, and investigate in there. So I went to the job center under Capital Radio. And there they put me in touch with uh, a company called Torchlight, which was a record sleeve designers. Ah. They got me the interview and I went along. They were in the heart of London. So they were in Little Portland Street, just off of Regent Street there, just literally around the corner from Radio One. So I went for the interview. And as I walked up the stairs and went into the reception, you know, for my interview on the wall, I knew I was in the right place because there was Bruce Foxton's, they'd done the, the sleeve for Bruce Foxton's single Freak. Right. Um, so <laughs> I'm sitting in the reception and, you know, I recognize that straight away. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, I'm definitely in a, in the right spot. And they had lots of, you know, music posters that they designed. They were doing a lot of stuff for Marillion at the time. You know, the, 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 I think you remember the Court Jester or you've seen the Court Jester uh, covers mm-hmm. and stuff from back in the day and uh, did a lot of stuff for those. And Chris Rea, I think they were doing some stuff for Paul McCartney as well. So yeah, I got a job as a foot messenger uh, for them, which basically an office assistant. But artwork back in the day, it wasn't done on computers at that time. So it was all done on kind of stiff artboard. And sometimes these things would range from a little advert which would probably, I don't know, by 10 by 4 or something, to, you know, these massive big boards. I had to carry these things around London to the record company, different record companies. <laughs> delivering them not, all over the place for sign-off. Yeah, yeah, to, to, for sign-off, yeah. So I was travelling on buses, tubes, and, you know, walking. All, but all the, you know, all the record companies were kind of in the West End at that time, you know, Bond Street and around that way. So yeah, I just try not to drop these things and, you know, uh, you know, mess them up and get them to where they needed to get to. And it was kind of an entry into record companies. You know, some, some record companies would say, you know, you've got a stand reception, but uh, I remember like Phonogram and Polydor, they were pretty cool. They would you know, let you in and take, send you up to the art department. And, um, so you got to know a few people through that. One of the, I guess an important artwork at the time was, uh, that, that Torchlight did was the Band-Aid single. Oh, cool. So, 
Right. Yeah, so I ended up taking that up to Phonogram to get signed off. Peter Blake, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and I, I I wasn't really aware of Peter Blake at the time. I would be later on when it came to Stanley Road, of course. But um, that was kind of my entry in. And then when I was going around to record companies, I used to ask the, the guys on the door, is there any jobs going in here and stuff? And some of them would just say, oh, no, 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 you know, just write in and stuff. But there was one guy at Phonogram, lovely Irish guy called Huey. He uh, he said, oh, he said, oh, yeah. He said, I think one of the post post boys is leaving. He says, tell you what to do, you know, write a letter. Uh, he gave me the, the name of Veronica Spicer, who was the head of HR at the time. I love um, the fact you remember all these. Brilliant. <laughs> oh, it's amazing how I do, I tell you. Um, so she... Uh, she was the person to write to. So he said, write the letter, give it to me, and I'll put in a word for you, and I'll give her the letter. So I did that, and uh, sure enough, I got an interview. Managed to pass the interview, and then, yeah, made my way into into the poly. It was Polygram, so it kind of covered uh, London Records, Phonogram, and Polydor, and they had the classics department as well, you know, the Polygram classics. So, yeah, that was my gateway in to start working with the record companies. And so my, my post-round incorporated Polydor, and London Records, which was great for me, you know, being a fan of Style Council and, and Banana Armor, that covered my my basis pretty much there. I mean, in those days, they're getting a lot of letters. I mean, I know that the Style Council had its own fan club and a separate thing, but did, they, did that all come to Polydor, some of that stuff as well? Some of it did, I think, yeah. Um, but there was you know, a ton of demo tapes, sacks of demo tapes coming in, you know, at that time as well. And all kinds of stuff, you know, you, you, people... Um, would send in vinyl, you know, people would be swapping vinyl between record companies. So someone from Polydor would probably be getting some uh, records from someone from RCA or BMG or something, you know, so those would come in and sometimes you'd take a little look, see what they're getting, if it was worth, you know, swiping. It may, it, sometimes they would, those records wouldn't quite get to where they were supposed to be. And uh, your record collection would grow a little bit. People that were working there at the time was uh, DJ Pete Tong. He was in the A&R department at London. I don't Brilliant. know if you know Pete you know, I don't, I don't know him personally, but obviously know of Pete, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, um, Pete Tong was there and uh, a guy called Jeff Young who used to work at Radio 1. So there was... I, I, had, an, Den- I had an interview with Jeff Young once. He interviewed Did you really? For, for a job at Radio 1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he used to run all the live music at Radio 1 and I went for a production j- assistant job there. Yeah, funny. Gotcha. Yeah, I was I was wondering if you'd known <laughs> of Jeff Young, but uh, yeah, so he was there for a while. They're, they're all nice guys and stuff. So yeah, that was, that was my way in. And did your path cross with Mr. Weller at any point? Was he in the office at all did he did he tip the male guy strangely enough i mean there were still i mean he did the thing about paul is he's very you know he likes the guys at the bottom of the ladder i heard he would come round to the post room or i think before i joined he was known to come round and stick his head around the door and say hi to the post boys and uh people in the you know in the in the because the post room was in the garage of Polygram, which is on the ground level. Yeah, it was kind of like on the lowest level. <laughs> but Paul, yeah, Paul would apparently pop out. And in the whole time I spent at Polydor, I think I had two encounters with him, but not to chat or speak to. One was, I remember, I think it was around the time that Level 42 were putting out their World Machine album or something, or uh, one of those albums. And uh, Polydor had moved at that time. It was up by Upper Brook Street at this point. And um, he came boundering down. You know, I'm packing up these. We had tour jackets for Level 42, and I'm trying to package them up because I had to go to a sales team. I cu- And I caught my eye, I saw someone coming down the corridor. And as I looked up, it was Paul bounding down the corridor. I was like, oh my God, this is insane. And I, I was just like froze. I was like, oh my God, that's Paul Weller. And I think he might have said something like, oh, I mate, you know, and just walked past. And that kind of made my made my day at that point. He had the studio up at, uh, stand, I think, Stand Up Place, you know, the old Polygram studio that they yeah, took Yeah, solid, solid Bond, right? Yeah. That's it, yeah. When he was there, he used to invite 
the Polydor staff to his birthday party. So there was one particular time I got invited to to one of his birthday parties. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. I went with a group of friends because you know you make a lot of friends when you work in the music industry. And one thing I remember from the party, I mean, everyone was getting drunk and uh, having a good time. I remember at one point I was sitting on this couch. I think it was at the, towards the end, and next to me is Mick Tolbert and DC Lee. And then I think Tracy, who I was, I I fell in love with Tracy when I saw her on the Style Council video from the beginning. And she was kind of like just grabbing some food from somebody. But they were, for some reason, I remember Mick Tolbert and DC Lee. And I think maybe Steve White as well was there with them. Just the three of them. And they were singing the theme tune to EastEnders. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, the bit at the end, boom, 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 boom. And then it goes into the, the theme tune. For some reason, they were singing that. And I was like, this is a bit surreal. And it's insane. I didn't join in with them. But, uh, but that was one of my memories from, from his, his birthday party. But I didn't, didn't speak to Paul. I didn't know Paul at that point, you know, and I was too shy to go up and introduce myself. And it was his birthday. So I didn't really want to kind of. Love it, love it. Well, now look, yeah. Pete, we, have, we haven't got you on just to tell us about your uh, um, your close encounters with Weller. Because <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> there are connections that are really important for me as a fan and this incredible sure. album that we're going to get to as we tell this story, Days of Speed. Yeah. But let's start at GoDisc because you were part okay. of GoDiscs before before Weller, actually. And um, tell us about, you mentioned Andy McDonald. Tell us about the fella who signed Weller, Andy McDonald. And it was Leslie Simons as well who set up the label initially, launched in 1983. But you joined in what, around 1990? Yeah, I joined around 1990 um, before Paul. I'd, I'd come from Chrysalis Records at the time and um, uh, I, I joined GoDisc. I was, I was kind of a bit hesitant to join GoDisc because I worked at these kind of bigger labels and GoDisc was a kind of smaller independent. And I didn't really know too much of the, about the bands. I, I knew that the House Smartens were on there and uh, that the Beautiful South were now from the House Smartens, but didn't really know too much about, you know, any other artists on there. Um went for an interview with um, Andy. The first thing he said when I got up to the, you know, to his office was, uh, okay, so what football team do you support? I said, oh, Spurs fan. And he went, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> yeah, that, I was, it was like, oh, my God, don't tell me. So you're Arsenal. And he's like, yep, absolutely. I said, well, shall I leave now? He's like, no, 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 sit down. <laughs> but he was he was really cool, a really cool guy. And, he, you know, we spent a lot of the interview, I think, talking about football. But um, he showed me that some of the stuff that was happening at GODIS at the time, there was, there was Trash Cans and Archers. They were coming out with their first single. The Lars, I think they'd released a couple of singles. Um, so this was before the, the album came out. And so, yeah, no, he was, he was a brilliant guy, really down to earth. And like, my whole time working with Andy was just fantastic you know that first solo album for Paul Weller arrives on Go Discs it's been mm. it's been out in Japan actually I think six months beforehand um, yeah, and, and yeah. the label in Japan actually fund the album and all that as well so was it clear to you working on that label that at that time Go Discs is suddenly getting that kind of energy that kind of reputation Weller joining did it feel like a, a key moment in the evolution of that record label yeah it did um, you know and obviously being a fan before you know Paul was it was kind of out of the circuit for a, for a while prior to that. And I remember um, a guy called Paul Dowling, but he was kind of involved. I remember him, him bringing in the 12-inch single, and he also had, I think he had a copy of Highlights and Hang-Ups or some edits from Highlights and Hang-Ups, the video that was made around about that time. And he's, he's like, Pete, come listen to this and watch this. And he put the single on, and it was uh, Into Tomorrow. And my head was just, Wow. He's back. He is back. And I think he had the video. They shot the video at the time. And I remember watching the video and it was just like, this is, this is 
Paul Weller that we know, really special. And it was a really special feeling to, to watch that. And he said, we're, we're thinking of signing him. I was like, oh, this is insane. That's insane. It's like, you know, when a big soccer player comes to your team, it was kind of like that feeling. And I remember being really, just really proud when, you know, we finally got product through and it had the Godis logo on it and Paul Weller's name. And it was really a great feeling. And I, mm. and I think it, uh, you know, lifted everyone in the label. And presumably it being an independent is much smaller. Presumably Weller's coming into the office and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he would start to come in. I, we didn't see him. I didn't, don't remember seeing him for a while, but, um, because, you know, with the first album, that was all pretty much done and dusted. As you say, it was, it was brought out in Japan first. So really all we were doing was just converting the, the parts that were already there, you know, putting the Godis logo on the artwork and stuff like that. I don't remember seeing him too much around about that time. It was really when Wildwood was starting to happen that I kind of started to get more involved with the artwork. And because that was my my job pretty much at, at Go Discs and Independiente was dealing with when the album's finished, I get the artwork, chase the master tapes from the A&R department and that kind of thing. And then uh, it was I was responsible for getting the CDs and the LPs and cassettes manufactured at the time. So I needed all those parts. And um, Paul's always been very uh, involved in the artwork, you know, and the sleeve design, him and Simon Halfon. So I remember, I think for Wildwood, the first time I really got to, to meet Paul was, I think went over to Nomis. He was at Nomis at the time. And we had some like roughs of the artwork that Simon had sent us over. Because Simon was, Simon Halfon was in California at the time. So he was sending stuff over to us and we would take it to Paul. He would look it over and kind of sign off on it and stuff like that. So that's when I really started to get to know Paul and the surrounding people that, that were in his in his band of merry men, if you like, like Kenny and stuff. Oh, bless Kenny Wheeler. I, I tell you, you, to be the first person to interview Kenny Wheeler, that's a, <laughs> that's an achievement in itself. I think Kenny would probably say the last as well, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah. But obviously, Paul, it, uh, you know, we talk about comebacks and all that. Wildwood is hugely successful, but then what comes next with Stanley Road is another level again. Yeah, it really was. It's, you don't really expect albums after album to be that good. Wildwood just knocked it out of the park initially. I mean, I think the first album did as well. Mm. And then when Wildwood came along, that was even better. And then we get to Stanley Road and it's like, this guy is just incredible. How does he come up with this stuff time after time? When you think about his past and, you know, the jam and the style council and the amazing stuff he wrote there, it's like he started almost like he's starting again and realizes he's, you know, after the, the, the period where he's not been doing anything or he, he kind of wasn't writing and doing more family stuff. He really took it by the horns and, and got straight back in to, to doing some incredible music. The other thing that comes through there is obviously it's also finding a new audience as well. And whether you want to link that, some of that with the Britpop time and Oasis Blur, all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's a really exciting time for music. But I was, what, 17, 18, discovering Weller. Um, mm. So I, I had not the history of the jam. I had not the history of the style count. So this was a brand new artist for me. And that would have been true of right. so many as, at the time as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you find yourself going back after you discovered the solo stuff? To, yeah, to so I, I, I thought he was a new artist. I thought, here's this guy, Paul Weller, was raving about him. And we had some painters yeah. and decorators, you know, I mentioned him too. Oh, you got to listen to this guy, Paul Weller. And they're like, yeah, all right, mate, we've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They introduced me to the Jam Greatest Hits, which had just come out, I think, 92 as well. And then, yeah, I was like, oh, okay. He's not he's not just my artist then, fair enough. Yeah, so yeah. discovering, what would that be? Like 10, 15 years worth of back catalogue. Incredible. And that's what I say. 
say, you know, he'd done all that and then now he's coming out with Stanley Road and, yeah, gaining a new audience, you know, people that are growing up, people are telling their their kids, like, you know, you need to listen to, this is the guy I listened to, you know, when I was a kid, you should get into some of his stuff. And, yeah, it really exploded. I mean, that, that Britpop thing really took off. You know, you had Oasis coming through as well. It must have been as a, as a small little independent label. I mean, how, how are you coping with demand in terms of pressing all that vinyl and CDs, getting the, all that distribution out to, to the market? Because that was a massive selling record, Stanley Road, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I mean, you try to get on to keep on top of it as much as you can, but it's incredible to think, you know, like thousands of CDs would be sold in a week. Sometimes 40,000 records would go out and we were being distributed through um, Polygram at the time. So, you know, they had all the... They had all the tools to, to get it all done. It, we weren't kind of producing these from a little small. You're not sticking you know, the stamps on the envelopes yourself and all that, right? No. No, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they're um, you know, they're being mass produced. Yeah, it was it was sometimes you'd you'd come quite close to going out of stock, and that's the last thing you wanted to do, you know. But it was just because the record was being so successful, trying to the, the record plant and the cassette. In manufacturers that were trying to keep up with the with the demand but um we had a few like that you know beautiful south and that you know that's why the, these discs because we had particular years where you know we had three albums selling thousands thousands of records and yeah so it was kind of tough at points to keep up with the demand but we managed to do it and as a fan what are you thinking when you get given those master tapes for stanley road which is an, e- an evolution again in terms of the sound mm. and always got his confidence back as a songwriter and and the band is so solid and all that but that must be pretty exciting when those are delivered to you right yeah i mean even when you get to you know you get to hear the first time you get to hear these these albums i mean a lot of the time the album would be recorded they'd, they'd send off we'd, we'd send them out to the masters to get some cds done just to to put around to people in the record company and just to have a listen when you got something like that and heard it for the first time just insane i loved him as a songwriter his, his talent as a songwriter even though i think he's underrated as a guitarist as well and the bands he had you know when when you went to see him live you got the, the album pretty much because he he could get it spot on and it's just incredible. But no, very exciting to, to hear albums for the first time. And also, we'd be invited to, uh, Paul would invite us down to the studios um, and they'd do a playback. He always kind of did playbacks and stuff like that in the studios where he'd recorded the albums. I remember going to the Manor um, for the Wildwood one, which was pretty crazy. Stanley Road, I'm trying to think where the Stanley Road one was. It might be in the Manor as well. But yeah, so you'd get invited and we'd all sit in a room and Paul would be there and we'd all listen to the record, have some drinks, get drunk and listen to the album. And then you hear it coming out, the, you know, the studio speakers is pretty, pretty incredible. Now look, just a few days ago from a recording, Paul's book, Magic, has come out here in the UK. I don't know if it's made yeah. it stateside yet, right? So this is as close probably to an autobiography as we're going to get from Weller. Um, mm. And he does talk about those years of, of excess. <laughs> 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 Let's call it that. Um, yeah. I mean, it was pretty full on in terms of drink and not so much drugs from Weller, although there was a bit of that, I think. You know, Andy McDonald's a pretty big character, you know, larger in life as well. Yeah. You're all kind of celebrating the success of this incredible label with all the artists, not just Weller. And the Times, live music's back, everybody's passionate about music again all that stuff's going on presumably this is carnage oh yeah yeah it could be definitely i mean i've i've spent some time i remember there was there was one i don't know where we were but me and paul ended up underneath a tree uh, <laughs> middle of that i don't know what time of night it was midnight or something but we'd we'd all been together celebrating something i, I don't know whether this was just a uh, you know me and um pippa pippa hall who, who used to do paul's press good friend of mine We'd sometimes get invited down to, it might be, maybe it was Black Barn, it was somewhere. But anyway, 
we'd, we'd all get drunk and stuff. And I remember me and him being under a tree. And I think I was just like saying, oh, I really love your music, man, and all this sort of stuff. And just confessed, he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. And <laughs> That's the final episode were, of this podcast when I get to chat before you realise that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Love your yeah. music, man. <laughs> I love it, man. But yeah, no, he was, you know, there was definitely some messy times. You know, I remember like for the, I think it was the Wildwood play, playback, uh, we was at the manor. That was crazy. I remember waking up and uh, there was, I think Dave Little was sitting around the table. There was Bobby Gillespie sitting at a table and we'd like just kind of been drinking all night. And it was just, yeah, it was, it could be pretty messy. <laughs> you mentioned Polygram. They were distributing mm. Go Discs and, and eventually yeah. acquire like a massive stake. And Andy McDonald gets extortionate amounts of money to the point that he could have quite honestly bought like a desert island and lived there for the rest of his life, right? Right. And, but Go Disc gets soaked up into that and actually not too long afterwards disappears as a record label for a time anyway. And yeah. Weller moves off to Island Records. We get Heavy Soul. We get Heliocentric. But then Paul signs up with this new record label. I'd always keep an eye on the labels that Paul was on because I love Go Disc. And I love that kind of, yeah. you know, the labeling of it on the record and all that stuff always seemed really yeah. special. Um, and then suddenly it's on this label and you're like, Independiente, what is this? <laughs> What's this all yeah. about? And actually, this is Andy McDonald's new record label. Yeah. And he continues his involvement in Weller's rec uh, recording career. And you go with him. You, you're with Andy. I mean, there was a probably a bit of a gap, I guess, but you're back with Andy working there again. Yeah. Well, um, when Godis was coming to an end, um, I think Andy left at one point and then it was left to the lawyers and stuff to deal with closing the whole thing down. And, or, or I think, I think it was being taken over by Polygram and some of the artists, the arts were being split up. Like, so the beautiful South, I think went to Ireland as well. But, you know, some of the bands were being split up and then some of them, I think, were dropped or whatever, you know, depending on what whether the, la the labels they were supposed to go to wanted to sign them or not. So, yeah, that happened. And then Andy, yeah, just wanted to get straight back in there again and started a uh, company called Independiente. And we kind of, you know, we kind of knew that this was kind of happening, that it, we weren't too sure whether we were going to be brought across or what was going to happen, you know. Not too many people from Godis actually went across to Independiente. But fortunately enough, Andy, for some reason, took me on board. And um, I guess he needed someone to do the manufacturing side and look after you know the stuff that I'd been doing before and didn't have anyone else in mind so yeah took me across and your production manager is your job mm. right and in terms yeah. of artists tell us some of the artists on the label that we would have heard of yeah um so Travis I have a feeling that um, I'm not sure but maybe Andy you know was looking to Travis towards the end of Go Discs and thought well I'm not going to bring them on here because that's going to finish <laughs> yeah yeah I'm going to keep them I'll save them and uh, that here the big time like I remember doing breakfast shows at that time and we were playing Travis every morning, every single yeah. morning, right? They were yeah. huge. They were huge, yeah. They were supposed to be a bit independent. Eh? There wasn't as many bigger bands. People like Roddy Frame was on the label. Yes, Roddy as Frame, a, yeah. Aztec Camera, Embrace. Embrace, yeah. That was, that was kind of, I think that might have been after I left Embrace came. There was one band I really liked, and it was only doing research to this, this podcast again that I remembered them. And I was like, mm. band called Crashland. Oh, very good band, yeah. Yeah, great they band. They were brilliant. And I think I interviewed them on the radio. I think they did a little session for me. And they, um, I think a Welsh band, weren't they, if I remember rightly? Yeah, um, Alex was the singer. I'm trying to think yeah. what his last name was now. Yeah, but they were a great bunch of guys as well. You know, they'd always be in and uh, they were fun to hang out with. Um, but yeah, great, great album. Um, I'm trying to think what the single was. I can't remember. I remember them doing a great cover of Blondie hanging on the telephone. They were, oh, oh, that's right. Really, yeah, they did. Really I good was, band. Yeah, they were really good. And really good live as well. Really good live. Maybe that was around the time of maybe Nirvana was over, but Foo Fighters and that kind of stuff. There was that kind of grungy feel about them. 
Yes, you know, yeah, 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 thought. absolutely right. So look, there's a lot of good acts on this label. Obviously, Weller mm. arrives um, as well. The connection mm. through Andy McDonald, presumably being that. It's interesting actually around this period because we've talked to members of his band around that time from the Heliocentric tour and whatever. This tour, this is solo acoustic tour that Paul goes out on, starts off as just a little thing, which a one-off gig, I think. And then suddenly mm. actually ends up going on for weeks and a few months and whatever. And it's yeah. become what we know now know is this beautiful album, Days of Speed. Your experience, before we get to the album and your role in that as exec producer, what was your experience of that solo acoustic tour? The way I heard about it is that Paul phoned me up. I was at Independiente in the office and he phoned up. He said, oh, I've got Paul Weller for you. He's like, okay. Um, and it was weird because, it, you know, there wasn't an album. He wasn't phoning about an album at the time. You know, Heliocentric had been out and stuff. So I was like, oh, it's odd. But anyway, he said, I'm going, you know, I'm going to go out on tour and I'm going to do an acoustic tour but I'm going to record it. Would you be interested in like listening to, you know, I'll get Kenny to get you the tapes as we're doing them and, you know, have a listen and then just pick a listen to see if there's any dropouts or which are, are really good versions compared to like versions where I'm missing something or, and I was like, wow, you're asking, you know, you're asking me to do it. <laughs> that sounds you know, incredible, doesn't it? Yeah. You're, yeah, you're, and you're I, getting the recording I, of every gig. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, surely well, why isn't Andy doing this, you know, or one of the A&R guys? I didn't kind of say that to him because I really wanted to do it. (laughs) And so, yeah, he said, yeah, would you want to do that? I was like, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what happened. You know, Paul went out on tour and uh, he would give, um, give the tapes to Kenny. Kenny um, was actually from, you know, not far from Enfield and he was in Chesson. Um, So he lived quite close to me where I was living at the time. What I did was I took a DAT machine from Independiente because they were were coming through on DATs at the time. I took a DAT machine home and I thought, well, I could really focus on it there because, you know, when I was at Independiente, I was doing my production manager role and I didn't want to kind of interfere with that. I really wanted to focus on on listening to this stuff. So I took a DAT machine home and I did it all in my flat. Tapes would turn up pretty much on a weekly basis. And then I'd keep in contact with Paul and he'd say, have you listened to the recent badge or what are you thinking? And I kept it. Funny enough, I've got this to my, my Days of Speed black box, um, <laughs> which, which I discovered. Um, I forgot I brought it over with me and I uh, forgot I had it for a long period. It sat in the back of the, the basement here just with the other boxes of stuff I brought over from the UK. But in here, this is where I kept all my notes, you know, from listening to the tapes. And we were so, when Paul would bring in the, or when I get the tapes and start listening to them, we started to produce CDs and send them out to Paul of tracks that I was uh, thinking were sounding the best. So here's just a bunch of... Oh, my God. So how many of these are all different versions of like you going, these are good yeah. like these or whatever, yeah? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. These are absolute mixture of, um, of stuff. And, you know, there's obviously stuff on here that didn't make the album. Some really interesting stuff. I mean, he, he did Slide Away by Oasis, which didn't make it onto the album. And whose decision was that? Was that yours or was that Paul? Who decided that final listing, what made it in the end? Why is Slide Away not on there, man? <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Paul, I think Paul had a, he had an idea of a set list, the tracks he wanted on there. It was finding the right versions of those particular tracks. If he did something, he would have easily said, you know, oh, I did Slide Away last night, you know, have a listen to that, see what you think. And uh, But I think he wanted to, to kind of keep it more to his own material rather yeah. than put covers on there there was actually a version um of that's entertainment with noel gallagher which he did at shepherd's bush great version but remember saying to paul like it's kind of your album and if you bring in guests it then becomes paul weller and guests when you know i thought that maybe it should be more of a paul weller album could have told me to do one or whatever <laughs> you know but it, I, he seemed to take that on board and he was like yeah okay yeah maybe you're right and so yeah the, you know the verse with Noel Gallagher of course we get that when we see him on the, the uh, later special him and yeah. Noel together yeah, which is which is a cool brilliant you know so yeah that was that was one I remember that didn't make it on there but he also did a couple of John Martin tracks as well I didn't realise but looking through um, discs and uh, notes that I made he'd done a couple of John Martin tracks which being a John Martin fan as well just bowled me over and I, unfortunately I don't have anything there's no none of these have the john martin stuff on there but yeah there was there was stuff like that and also um i also realized that i had in here which i didn't know at the time was uh do you recognize that wow the actual set list that became part, yeah. of, the, uh, the, part of the album it's the actual yeah i didn't know <laughs> i had it in there i was like so is that the original on. you've got the original it is, it is the original yeah it's just what paul wrote out because you can see on the <laughs> See on the back, it's written on some kind of... Uh, oh, yeah, it's something else. <laughs> there's something else on the back, yeah. I was looking at this yesterday, and there's some... I don't know where he got this from, but... It's just a scrap of paper. That's scrap of paper, yeah, but there's uh, something on... I don't know where this is from. It says, uh, just a couple of lines at the bottom, it says, Mrs. Kierman has gone out, Elizabeth said. I've got something to show you. Maybe this is a great lost Weller novel that is written. Well, yeah. <laughs> then I started thinking, maybe it's his poetry. It's a poem or something. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it is. I think it's probably literally just a scrap of paper that he picked up and wrote it down. But yeah, that was his idea was to put on the, the handwritten uh, set list when we had it made up. The other side contained a, a letter from Paul about that's right. Well, the tour like bent him and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah and it's a, exactly. Honestly, it's, it's a fabulous. I think the one thing about that album as well is it was the first time for a long time that he was digging into. I mean, since the beginning of the movement and the you know him coming back, that he was digging into the jam and the star council again because for so many years, yeah. rightly so, he had an incredible you know solo catalogue that he was playing. But it's the right. first time he dug back into things like that since Tame and Malice, all those kind of stuff for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, and of course, you know, I was. I was delighted to, to be listening to some of that stuff. It's like, you know, when all those years, it's like, uh, I'll put it to the analogy of, uh, you know, that old saying where like, you know, you're waiting for your bus, you wait an hour and then three come along at the same time. Well, I'm sitting there, you know, we've all been waiting to hear him do that's entertainment. And then all of a sudden I've got 60 copies of it. <laughs> 
<laughs> from different versions. I've got to pick one of them. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you're, the, you're the only person right now who, you know, recently they repackaged Revolver, the Beatles, and you, oh, ended, right, up, yeah. you ended up, I don't know, like 12 versions of, of one of their songs, for instance. You're yeah. the only one who can do that with Days of Speed. You've got like, every version of that song there. Yeah, and it wasn't just that, you know, it was like 60 versions of all of the songs that we yeah. kind of went through. But it's no, it's really nice to be able to, to hear that stuff again. And um, that's the, the other thing about Paul and you can break his songs down to acoustic versions and they just still sound insane. That's how good a songwriter he is. And when you can do that, I mean, I think that's just the mark of a true artist. When you take a produced track and break it down to an acoustic version and it takes on a, a, another journey of being really special. I think the other thing for me that I loved was there were songs that hadn't been on albums, maybe B-sides that he'd done, so or there'd been standalone singles. So we kick off with Brand New Start, for instance, which hadn't been on an album, mm. was a single. We hear The Loved, which is still yeah. to this day one of my absolute favourite Paul Weller songs. Just beautiful. But then we get, yeah, you're right, like versions of English Rose and Above the Clouds and even Science, yeah. which actually on Heavy Soul is a pretty full-on funky kind of song. Yeah, here it is as an acoustic version. But it's an album I play a lot and so many the fans of this podcast have mentioned how much they love this album just yeah. him a guitar and the songs and that's all right. you need it just sounds great yeah it is and um i kind of remember when we, we mastered it it's funny because you know in my position at the, you know working i used to come in at the beginning of albums so like you know once the albums have been recorded but here I was right at the beginning, you know, and then mm. saw it right through to the end, even to the point of getting the platinum discs made for, for people, you know. It's really great for me because I, I started right at the beginning listening to the stuff and I saw it through to when the artwork was being done and when um, I had the masters. So I, I could, I, I went down to the mastering. Paul said, you know, go down, just, you know, oversee the mastering stuff, which I didn't do a great deal of. One of the inputs were, you know, one of the specs was like, let's try and make it sound like if you weren't there, the album makes you feel as if you were there. And it was kind of, I think we managed to do that, you know, with the, with the audience and the way that the tracks interact with, you know, there's no pause and then it's all kind of mingled in, you know, with the crowd. So it feels like you're at a gig pretty well, much. Well, and the little bits of sing-along as well in terms of, um, I think it's that's entertainment. There's the bits yeah. where the crowd is singing back. They do place you there, which I guess is the point of this is a live album as well. And you want to bring that across, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, some of the places he was playing were, I mean, I think there were theatres and stuff like that, but they were kind of a much more intimate setting, you know, just him and uh, and funny, I was listening to, to, I was going over some of these CDs, you know, with the stuff that didn't make it. And it's quite interesting. He was really, he was kind of really chatting to the audience quite a bit, you know, more so than I think he'd ever done before. Because normally it's just like, a, yep, thank you. And then on to the next song. But he was kind of like chatting to the audience like, I think I heard him saying like, you're right down there. And, you know, just <laughs> interacting with me, which I, you, you didn't really yeah that was a, that's, not, that's not a well that's not a well a trait in terms of like it's not right yeah, yeah no yeah. it's uh just get on to the next track let me ask you about this i don't know if you've heard about this right so this is a little project that was called slow time mondays does this ring any bells you're aware of this no not at all okay this is fascinating right so this is one of the finest fan-made projects ever from a Weller point of view, right? So there was a little right. community at the time which were called Splinters or Little Splinters. This is pre-social media days, so this was like oh. a for an online forum, bunch of right. people all chatting and whatever. And what they created was a CD hmm. of all of the tracks played on that tour that were not included on the official album. This was just audience recordings. So these aren't the versions you've got. These aren't the quality right. things, right? Yeah. Um, so they had things like Country and Foot on the Mountain. They had Slide okay. Away, the Oasis. Right. 
They had the, the John Martin songs you mentioned, which were I Don't Want to Know and May You yeah. Never. Yeah. And they created a CD. And then what would happen is rather than selling this CD, right, this wasn't the aim. Yeah. It'd be like a pass it forward thing, right? So somebody oh, okay. would do the CD, the original. Yeah. They'd send off 10 copies. Those people right. would then make 10 copies, send them off to the next fans. And they would just keep paying it forward, sending this on or whatever, right? Wow. Through this community. Wow. It's now on Mixcloud as an actual thing, right? So you can listen to the to the whole thing. You must dig into this. But... So I will get to hear my John Martin uh, version. <laughs> you will, yeah, exactly. Fantastic. But not through your dad. <laughs> not through mine. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I thought, what a lovely... And it actually came out a month before Days of Speed was released. Did it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. But, no, but, I was... But none I of the... Know, none was... none, yeah, none of the tracks that made the album, none of the songs that made the actual official album were on it. It was, it was right. all the ones that weren't included. And I thought, you know what? That's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. I wonder if it puts the album into... into... It's insignificance. <laughs> yeah. You can get it's everything a, there. It's a nice yeah. flip of it, because I think you're right. That, that album works really well as a playlist, doesn't it? As a, as a, as a set list. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I think Paul must have had that all along, The tra- you know, the tracks that he wanted to put down. I think I probably highlighted those as ones to, to, to really pay attention to and to look, look for, you know, the good versions of that. To be quite honest with you, the majority of the stuff was, you know, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You know, there did only be the odd time when he might miss a string or something. So I was listening out for that sort of stuff, you know, making sure we had a definitive version where, you know, a string wasn't ringing out too much or he might have messed up the words or something. And uh, yeah, you're listening to it as a fan because you love the music, but actually you've got to listen to it as a job. (laughs) Like you're focused on the, the, hold on, am I hearing any errors? Yeah. 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 And sometimes you could like, oh, did I have to go back and listen to that? Because I was so (laughs) drawn into the song and the performance that he was doing, you know, like, oh, I need to go. And check that now again and make sure that there was nothing you know that stands out in it it's funny enough that you, you mentioned the loved did you get that as the um the flexi disc that came out um i remember when it because i've got another bit of my uh, <laughs> i've got 50 versions of that <laughs> yeah not quite 50 versions but <laughs> this is that this is you know um you talk about paul coming into the office and um i, I was out at lunch one time I got back from lunch and on my desk was this letter from Paul. Right. And it's all about the love. Um, he's basically saying, Pete, encloses a tape, that copy of the loved. Please forward cassette and letter to the big issue to Nick, but keep hold of the dat until we get their response, hopefully tomorrow. And we'll have uh, time to move the cut because we must have been planning the cut to cut the record at that time. And then he's got lists, the credits, and then right at the bottom uh, says, uh, okay, any questions, bell me at no miss. That was the first time I'd heard that song was when it was the flexi disc for the big issue. Yeah. Absolutely adore that song. I I love all those things. I mean, that also Weller's handwriting is unmistakably Weller, right? So absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) It's really distinctive. I remember I used to try and copy his, uh, his um, signature. I tend to autograph stuff. <laughs> or if I ever found my way into his checkbook, I could write yeah, myself yeah. a check. You know. Uh, but no, uh, yeah, he's, it's it's really neat handwriting. I think. I mean, even you know the handwriting on that is on the better than mine. Yeah, yeah, Much yeah, better yeah. Than mine. Big thick marker pen type things. Yeah, sharpie. Independiente, so he stays mm. for another another record as well, Illumination, and we get a couple of singles off that. And it's interesting, as you again recently reading the book Magic. That's not a period where he loved songwriting. Those albums, Heliocentric, Illumination, I think Illumination, I think particularly, he was like caning on the or he was on the road a lot. Maybe right. he said this, the songs weren't developed as much. I love that album. I think it's a terrific album. But, yeah, it is um, a great album. Yeah. What are your memories of that LP and around that time as well? That's when he started to work with Simon Dine, right? It was yes, Simon Dine coming yes, in. Simon did the it's written in the star single yeah that's right yeah i love that single um i love one by one as well 
from that uh, album. With Noel Gallagher um, on drums. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Funny enough, Simon Dyan was an A&R man at Godis when I joined. He was working at A&R then, in A&R. And then he left and then he came back to Godis a little while after. Then we started to see that Simon was involved and he was working with Simon because Simon was doing the Noonday Underground thing, I think around about that time. And that's where Paul really kind of thought, oh, you know, let's just maybe get Simon in to do some uh, do some work on this. But yeah, I know. I love that album. I think it's a, it's a great album. I remember when we had to do the, the, the cover because the cover has got curves on, on the vinyl. It's got curves. It's here, look. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's a pain in the ass, the curves. <laughs> well, yeah, it was a pain in the ass to do. But, you know, Paul was very, you know, I say very particular about the artwork and making sure, he, you know, especially vinyl. He was always about vinyl, you know, making sure we got that right. And then CD, yeah, whatever you want to do with that. So, yeah, I remember we had to... You know, because you have to pay for special cutters to cut those shapes out. And uh, I remember, I think I, I ended up having an argument with uh, with the printers because they were trying to get it and they couldn't get it right. And I was like, no, no, this isn't going to sit well. And you know, so well, we don't know if we can do it. It's like we, we've got to do it. We've got to find a way to make this work. And we did in the end. But um, yeah, I remember that one specifically because it had the corners, it's like just very strange shape. And then when you open it up as a gatefold, have you seen that somewhere else, or was it just? I don't know. I can only assume that because he did. I mean, with artwork. He, he really was keen on on specifics with the vinyl to a point where I remember I'm trying to think maybe it was it was one of the albums he was always trying to get really old records like if you go back to like Frank Sinatra or someone like that if you look, you pick up their vinyl there's a really thick coating of gloss on the records back then and it's almost like you you know if you leave it for a few years it will start to peel off. And he wanted that kind of finish on, you know, he tried to go for that kind of finish on a lot of the albums. And of course, you know, the manufacturing had moved on since those times. So trying to replicate that would be quite difficult. And so we, we tried to get as close as we could, you know, but it still wasn't perfect for him. But yeah, I, you know, he really did just spend a lot of time and involvement in how the record would look. That was just as important to him, I think, you know. Interesting. Yeah. The, um, and that goes right back to the Style Council, the Jam, the, the you know, all that was all the yeah. way along has been interesting in the visual. Yeah, him and um, Simon Halfon worked um, together on all that sort of stuff. And You mentioned um, John Martin. Um, so yeah. I should ask at this stage about John because, I mean, mm. a absolute legend. Danny Thompson's been on the podcast as well. You I know, know yeah. It's a great interview. Yeah, and, sh- and share some wonderful stories about John on the podcast as well. I think I'm right in saying that you brought him to the Go Disc label, and then he was on Independiente for a bit as well. And you had a really close relationship with John, didn't you? Yeah, um, I became a fan of his for a friend of mine, Ian, um, who introduced me to his music, and that was around about the time he had an album out called Piece by Piece. It's the first time I remember listening to an album all the way through and loving every single track on it. And then, of course, finding out his back catalogue, when you go back and you pick up Solid Air and you put that on, mm. it's like... This is just insane. For me, that record is probably the best produced record, just the way it sounds, the players he's got on there, you know, Danny on there, and the way John plays and the way he sings. And yeah, so just totally fell in love with John. And he was with Ireland for the longest time, and then he'd left Ireland, and he was playing the Mean Fiddler one time, I remember. And I went down to see him play. I didn't know him at this point, you know, hadn't ever met him. I'd just only been to gigs. And it was a small venue. He was he'd kind of had a few drinks and stuff, as he would have uh, gigs. And so he was on there playing. And I remember talking, I was standing next to the sound guy. And I said, uh, who's John signed to now? And he said, oh, I said, I don't, he said, I don't think he's on a label anymore. I think he's just, you know, this is just a one-off gig. I was like, oh, okay. And so I had a few more drinks and started to get my courage up. And I was like, well, <laughs> I'm going to see if I can sneak back just to say hello to him. You know, I wanted to say hello. I wanted to meet him. Somehow I managed to get backstage at the Mean Fiddler. I sneaked my way through. 
I could see him. He was he was in his dressing room and he was looking out. And uh, I mean, I didn't know too much about his personality and stuff. And he could be, you know, if he didn't like the look of you, you know, he'd, he'd probably uh, take a swipe at you or something. So I was kind of in a dangerous area at that point, you know, having been back there and not being someone he recognized. But I could see him and he was in his dressing room. So I made my way towards his dressing room. and I got to the door and put my hand out. And he went to shake it, by which time his manager or person who was looking after at the time was this, this um, lovely lady called Daisy Flowers, her name was, grabbed me, took me out, said, what the hell do you think you're doing? I was like, <laughs> I, was just, I was just trying to get, she goes, yeah, yeah, but he's in there with family and he's just played a show. You don't go anywhere. You know, what are you doing back here? And I said, well, I actually work for um, a record company called Go Discs. And, um, you know, I just wondered what John was doing. You know, the, the sound guy said that he wasn't in a deal or something. And I said, I just wondered, well, you know, if you guys were looking for a deal, I'll, I'll leave you my details. And then um, I, I wasn't an A&R man. I was still a production guy, you know, nothing to do with signing bands. <laughs> but because I was such a fan, I was like, oh, this would be incredible if, uh, you know. And so I'd end up leaving the gig. Daisy wanted to try and get me out there as quickly as possible. And, but she took the number. And then a few days later, they'd called um, they called the Go Discs, and there was another another big fan. The the marketing director was uh, a guy called um, Mike Hennigan, and he was a huge John Martin fan too. And I think that um, Daisy or John had called, and then they got put through to Mike. So they had a discussion, and next thing you know, John's coming in to you know check out the label and stuff and have a chat. And so yeah, he came in, had a meeting, and I came. I got introduced to him properly. <laughs> <laughs> that time, you know, and then he signed. And then again, another moment uh, that was incredible because I had an, another favorite artist on the, on the label. And then, uh, you know, I kind of did my production manager role for him and got to know him really well. Um, fortunately, he, he took a shine to me and he would, you know, if there was any issues with the, the label or like, oh, I haven't had my money, he'd phone me. <laughs> so yeah, we need to have a gun. I haven't been paid for this, and when when I get you know, so he phoned out, up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort it out. So I, I kind became a bit of an artist liaison for him, and um, yeah, just just loved him. He was always really, you know, there, there's stories about him, yeah, um, you know, with his checkered past and stuff. But he was really sweet with me, and um, I think you know he he knew we were trying to do something for you know get his status moved up again and get him in like with Paul, find a new crowd for him. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Godis was perfect for that because we had Portis head on there. We had Paul on there and, you know, they eventually met and worked together and yeah, it was brilliant. The Godis album was and yeah. And that and Phil Collins played on that, didn't he? Was he Phil Collins on drums on that, wasn't he? Yeah, he did. He played, uh, played drums on, uh, one of the tracks. I think he co-wrote, uh, one of the tracks on there with John as well. I think yeah. they had it down as a co-write. Yeah. But there's also a nice little Weller connection. Lawrence Watson, uh, who yeah. took the to cover photo, obviously <laughs> has been on the podcast, but, uh, yeah. and also did a lot of the cover photos for John after that point as well. So nice, co- nice connection there. Yeah. It was great because we could use people like that for John's stuff. Whereas before, I mean, between Island Records and Go Discs, he was on a, a label called Permanent. We were really kind of not doing it. And he, he really didn't get on with those guys to the point like when we would release something like And or another John Martin record, they would rehash the stuff that they'd had recorded mm. and put that out at the same time just to interfere with what we would do or jump on the bandwagon of what we were trying to do. 
There's a great story. I mean, when he Lawrence took the church with one bell, I don't know if you're familiar with that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Independiente, yeah. We sent Lawrence up to John's church because he was going to take the picture of the cover and the idea was to get the, the bell, obviously, on the top of... This thing was right on the top of John's house that was literally an old church. And Lawrence was like, oh, my God. He said he had me, he, he had me up this ladder. He said I was trying to not fall off but try and get the best picture I could. Yeah, so uh, so <laughs> that was one of the things I remember Lawrence saying about hanging out with John and spending the night up there trying to get this picture, perfect picture, for which he did. You know, he got a great picture of the, the church. I love it. There's a, this trilogy of albums I would say on Independiente, The Church with One Bell, you mentioned Glasgow Walker is a... Fabulous LP. Um, oh, yeah. It fe- features our friend of the podcast, Catherine Williams, on a number of yeah. tracks. And, um, yeah. and actually, Guy Barker, who's been on the podcast, who's a style council days, honorary council has been on it. That's right. Um, yeah. Was on it as well. But then also on The Cobbles, we should mention, 2004, which Paul Weller was on on one of the songs, a track called Under My Wing. Yeah. I was, I was there for the recording of that. I was, that was just like, that's my, my highlight moment of being in the music industry is watching my two favorite artists sit down at the uh, Paul studio, John on the, sofa paul on the the mixing desk chair both facing each other with guitars working out what they were going to do it was just a brilliant you know i wish i had my phone camera then you know i didn't take any camera down or anything um but yeah the two of them sitting there and just figuring out what they were going to do what parts they were going to play and steve wyatt was actually there um he did the drums he did the original drums um on the version they did down at the studio and it was quite funny because john from what I remember, John wasn't really having what Steve was playing. You know, Steve was playing. So, and Steve Wyatt, you know, for God's sake, <laughs> yeah. is one of the best drummers going. But John, you know, John always had a thing with drummers. He kind of got along with them in general, I think, you know, certainly the ones he had in his band. And Steve was out there, you know, putting down a backing track. And John's like, no, 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 no. And he's trying to relate to Paul. And Paul's like the mediator between John <laughs> and Steve Wyatt. And he's trying to keep Steve happy. And he's trying to get what John wants, you know. And I remember, yeah, the, the original version that came back from the studio had Steve White's drumming on it. And I thought it was brilliant. And then I think John, when the album was being made, because John, a, a good friend of mine now, uh, Jim Tulio, who was John's producer for a few of his albums when he was on the permanent label, that I think everything was sent over to Jim to mix. And I think they replaced Steve's drums with just a, a different recording, um, which is a bit of a shame because I thought the original ones sounded great oh, i'd love to hear that man that must yeah. be somewhere somewhere in an archive somewhere in a yeah know, it must have probably covered. went down down with the good ship go discs you know when that all kind of <laughs> wow, folded wow, and wow. stuff we, mm. i should mention as well your own production company which is called solid air we mentioned that yeah. favorite album of yours and actually focusing less now on other artists music but more on composing and creating like production music right yeah so i I recorded local bands for a while had a great time doing that but it just became a little bit more inconvenient as you know you know i have two daughters and my wife and i'd have to send them out (laughs) yeah they go to the mother-in-laws the band would come in and i'd record them i was nothing extravagant really um it was just like mostly acoustic stuff but with people walking around you could hear it and stuff so a lot of stuff was mic'd and you didn't want to pick up any of that sort of stuff so they would go out you know when as the kids were getting older i thought oh, i can't really send them out too much more and um I'm, but i had my studio and it's like well what am i going to do you know i have all this equipment i need to do something with it maybe there's a way of bringing an income another way 
So, yeah, I started to look into background music for TV. And so for the last two, three years, I was researching it and trying to figure out what's needed and how to record. Because they're recorded instrumental songs for TV are recorded totally different from writing a, a song. You know, there's certain specifics you have to follow. Um, so I was researching all that and practicing that. And um, just as of uh, last year, well, last year, beginning of last year, I sent out my music to some production music libraries that specialize in getting music on TV. I sent out like... 12, like these are kind of dance pop sort of things, sort of thing you'd hear in the Kardashians or something like that, you know, so kind of dancey. Um, sent them out. I heard from one, one publisher that was really big in, in the reality TV area. And um, they said, yeah, we listen to your stuff. We kind of quite like it. Um, but I need to go and, you know, listen to, uh, uh, speak to the guys I work with and see, see before I send out a contract or anything. So I was like, fine. Didn't hear back from them. Contacted them again. Didn't hear anything. And then in uh, September, the end of September, I got an email from a music library said, we'd like to sign your tracks and we'd like to sign all 12. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting maybe one or two they might have signed, but um, they said, yeah, we want to sign all 12. So they did. They they signed those. And then they said, uh, oh, we've sent them to our music department and they like them so much. We're working on a couple of reality TV shows that are due to come out um, next year. So we're going to send them on to the, to the editors of those shows. So there's no guarantee that you'll get anything in them, but you know, we'll send them on to the editors and hopefully your music will make its way in there. Would you be interested in writing specifically for these shows as well? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah. So from last September, I've been working on a weekly basis, providing them with music for TV shows and so far one of the TV shows, two of the TV shows are out now, they're currently running at the moment and uh, one is a Spanish um, like a Spanish thriller series and they've used six of my tracks but all the episodes apart from two or three have featured my music which has been brilliant, you know wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. and then um, I've had one in uh, uh, Vanderpump Rules I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah, TV yeah, show yeah. yeah, so um, I've had a placement in that, I'm hoping for some more in that and then uh, the Real Housewives is another show that is. Uh, we uh, have it on all all the time in my house. Have you got but, all that uh, stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say we. I mean, I mean, I mean my wife. But yes, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's so a very popular easily, series. Easily to get roped into it. You know, just <laughs> the wife's watching it, and then suddenly you find yourself sitting yeah. down and going, "Oh, getting into it." <laughs> yeah, you, you've watched six hours. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, yeah. that's really that's really cool. Of course, I'm listening out for the music. I'm not. <laughs> well, I will to in future. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, well done with that man and good luck for that for the future man that's really yeah, exciting thank you. i've got two final questions for you before you go you'll know this this is the podcast yeah. all right you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or solo what would you go with i'm actually going to go with a b-side and it's a year late from uh you do something to me nice. um i don't know if anyone else has picked that one so far but of all the songs um and i remember saying to paul that i think it's the closest anyone's come to nick drake a Nick Drake sounding record and or you know that kind of really iconic folky sort of stuff I just love it it's a beautiful the lyrics are just beautiful I don't know what it's about really I'd, I'd love to find out that but uh, yeah I just remember that when I heard that I was like it's just beautiful beautiful so well recorded I think I remember him telling me that I think it was Helen the, the keyboard player who arranged the strings for that which was uh, I was like wow I mean, that, the string arrangement's incredible on that Nice. It's funny that because I thought he'd played that one during the days of Speed Tour, but it was only when I was checking the notes. I was like, I don't think maybe he didn't. But I yeah, he I don't think he. I don't yeah. think he did. He um he did perform it on. A, I think it was 
it was a Stanley Road, uh, Jules Holland specials. They, Paul the used to get quite, yeah. yeah, the later specials. Paul used to always feature on special shows based around his, his uh, albums and stuff. Um, and he performs it, it's on YouTube. Um, but he performs it on there and it's brilliant. Good choice, man. Good choice. I, I like that. that. Something new, but once yeah. somebody's not gone with down at the tube station at midnight. So that's good. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, final question. Um, yeah. So the purpose of this podcast is for me to speak to people like you who have had these connections with Paul and hear your stories, which is lovely. But really being honest is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. So if it happens at the end of this podcast series, what should I ask him, Pete? Well, I'm just surprised, first of all, that you haven't got to speak to him yet, seeing as you've had Kenny <laughs> you on me, there. You and you me know. both, man. He's, yeah. not, he's not been in <laughs> touch, nothing. Oh, on, my God. He doesn't write anymore. Yeah. Um, I'd love a letter yeah. written in Sharpie, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, my question would be, it's kind of a bit of an odd one, but given he, you know, his, his love of The Who, Small Faces, The Beatles, and The Kinks, I'd like to know if he was in the position where he had to replace one member from one of those bands, as Paul Weller and what he brings <laughs> to the table as a musician and yeah. a singer, who, which member of which band is he going to take away for him to fit into? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Be quite interesting to see him in one of those bands and what he would bring. One thing I'd like to know, you talked about like him sending you dats and all that kind of stuff. Somewhere, presumably, there is a massive Weller archive of all that type of stuff. That that didn't all get binned, right? No, no. I'd, I'd imagine... Uh, I, well, I know that the, the, the repressings of the Independiente stuff came out through Concord, I think it is. Yes. There's a record yeah. label called Concord. I don't know much about... Well, I wonder whether maybe they've got... A bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know where it, 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 it wouldn't have been binned. Andy wouldn't let that happen. He, you know, it must be somewhere. Maybe Andy's got it in a in a lockup somewhere on that desert island that we saw. On that desert island with him, yeah, <laughs> with a pile of cash he's sitting on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, maybe I, I I can't imagine that. It, I wonder whether maybe Universal have got it. I know that Paul's yeah. not necessarily a fan of those big deluxe editions and the demos and all that, but as fans, you know, hearing that oh. kind of stuff is, you know, I love the work in progress stuff. It'd be great. To hear yeah, that, me but, too. Yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff. Love, love those kind of things. Hey, man, this has been so lovely chatting with you. Cheers for your stories. Thank you for getting up at the crack of dawn to chat with me as well. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, so I'm a big <laughs> fan of podcasts. I love listening you know, because uh, there's so many people that I've come across through working with Paul that have appeared on there. And it's great hearing their stories and the stuff that they got up to with him. And uh, yeah, but I think all around you'll find, you know, that his work ethic comes across the way he focuses on on the music. And, and he's a wonderful, wonderful that I say don't meet your pop stars and stuff or your idols but of John and Paul you know they certainly live up to the mark ah oh, bless you thank you for your time Pete really appreciate oh, it you're very welcome Dan very welcome thanks for your time my thanks once again to Pete Mason exec producer on Paul Weller's Days of Speed album loads of lovely connections from Polydor Go Discs Independiente Check out the show notes for this podcast as well for photos of some of the things that we've been talking about. Plus that little spin-off from the Splinters team as well. All the details, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, you can head into my store, grab yourself an official podcast mug or maybe a canvas bag so you can go shopping for your vinyl. 
And whilst you're there, you can get a virtual coffee as well. Hi to Phil Baker, who's done exactly that. Thanks to you for your generosity. Hi also to Night Design. Hello, sir. Hi to Dan, who bought you a coffee. I don't think I'm buying myself coffees, but thank you to you, Dan. Hi to Alex McLaughlin, who says, Fascinated to hear Steve Barron's story. Another guest that I knew nothing about, despite those strong jam connections. Every day is a school day. (laughs) Hi to Georgia Moroso, who says, Top podcast. I love the film guy and Nick Haywood. Thank you, Georgia. Hi to Russell Cox. Hi to Ian Hamilton, Stephen McEllenon. Hello, Grant. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Duncan Essex as well. Hi, Ian. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee as well. Cheers also to everybody who came down to our live show at the Water Rats in London. A massive success. You'll hear recordings from those sessions in the next few weeks as well. Thanks so much for coming down. Really do value your support. Much appreciated. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast or you can email me direct through the website paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.